0: Okay, let's uh, continue on together. Back in the room, if you've come in a bit later on, welcome. Uh, in terms of preaching this year, there's, I hope there's been some, some consistency of vision. So if you were here last term, we were looking at one John in particular, and we were kind of honing in on the aspects of our vision, which is particularly to know God and to be known and loved. And John in his letter emphasizes those things, doesn't he, about authentic worship and knowledge of God and loving of each other. And in this term, we've kind of transitioned into the third part of the vision in terms of what it means to make God known. So we've had a series in John chapter 4 on the hows of evangelism, making God known in that sense. And we're going to stay with that theme of making God known for the rest of this term. And we're going to dive into the Old Testament, if you have your Bibles, into the book of Daniel. And we're going to be having a, a much more of a verse-by-verse verse approach, uh, looking at the first six chapters of Daniel and thinking about what it means to make God known in a sense of being citizens, And the Bible talks about a Christian as being ultimately a citizen of heaven. Someone who has an inheritance, a belonging, an identity that is ultimately beyond this age and is into the age to come. But it also talks about somebody who has that identity actually as being one of the best citizens of earth. And so for the Bible, a Christian is somebody who's a secure, confident citizen of heaven, and that en- enables them to make a huge difference for God in the kingdom of the earth, if that makes sense. And so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 to 6 for the next six weeks, and I've asked Mike to kick us off. Mike's in the life group he is here, if you don't know him, and I've asked Mike to kick us off into Daniel chapter 1. So for possibly the seventh time this morning, I think we need another King's Church round of applause to get Mike going.
1: Fantastic. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. If I, if I may start with my own slight com- commendation. Um, uh, Philip uh, always invests a lot of time and energy up front in me uh, as I'm prepping for my preachers. So uh, I just commend Philip to you. He, he blesses me so that hopefully uh, we can all be blessed um, through, through this morning. So thank you, Philip, for all you do uh, in helping us prep. Um, and as Philip said, today is uh, the first in our uh, series in Daniel. And it's one of those preachers I hope um, will really bless you. It's a preach that I think is quite dear to my heart. Um, I loved what you brought earlier, uh, Ross, about the rocks. And as I was holding my hands out, I think often one of the rocks that I uh, find comfort in is comfort. And, and lifestyle, and I think today's preach as we start to think about engaging with our context around us will hopefully bring a bit of challenge, uh, hopefully bring a bit of provocation, ask a few questions of us, um, and I will be preaching this to myself as well, um, because I think it, at one of the costs of stepping out into our context is often our comfort and our lifestyle. So, um, hopefully today is a, a great blessing for you guys. But I think uh, just to begin before I sort of get into our, our journey together over the course of the next half an hour or so, uh, just for those who are less familiar with, with Daniel, I wanted to set a bit of context. So the year, in chapter chapter one is uh, is, is six hundred and six B.C. So about two and a half thousand years ago, and Babylon. It's the great superpower of the time, and it's uh, it's ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Many of you will be familiar with that name. He's this proud, cruel tyrant. He was the sort of Hitler, if you like, of the ancient world. He has conquered Assyria, and the next on his list was Egypt. But standing between uh, him and Egypt uh, was Judah. And so he sets his sights on Jerusalem and to Judah. And to begin with, what he does to Judah is he takes, or he exiles the top layer of Jewish society. And it's there that Daniel and his friends were. And so Daniel and his friends find themselves exiled. Who was Daniel? Well, he was uh, this sort of young, intelligent, aspirational Jewish guy. But at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, his life would be turned upside down. Babylon was a completely different place to what he knew. It had different languages, different cultures, different customs. It's fair to say he would not have felt fully at home. He was a citizen of Israel, soon to be living as a citizen of Babylon, but he wasn't alone. Um, And so he wrote this book as an encouragement to his fellow Israelites, his fellow believers, to stay the course, to keep going in their beliefs and their convictions. And I believe with this context in mind, I think there's a lot we can take from the book two and a half thousand years on. So, let's begin. So we're going to start, we're going to go on a bit of a journey over the course of chapter one, and I'm going to try and take in three chunks. So let's begin with our, with our first. In the third year of the reign of Jeroboam king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jeroboam king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinnah, otherwise Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of his people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans." Again, otherwise known as Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Amongst these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So I'm going to pause there. That's our first chunk today. Let me begin by asking for a slight show of hands. If you work in a secular, non-church profession, would you just put up your hand? Yeah, okay. So the vast majority of us, I think it's fair to say. Well, Daniel was the same, right? He was being thrust into the fast track towards the top of a secular vocation of public service to the king. And I love that picture we're given. After three years, he's told he's going to be standing before the king. Daniel's context was high powered, it was high stakes, it was important. He was in a place of great influence. But it also looks like it's quite single minded. It sounds as though he would have worked and lived amongst the same people in sort of the same context. So, what's your context today? I think it's important we, we ask that question first. I think for me, my context tends to be fourfold, sort of how I divide up my life, if you like. Uh, there's, fam- there's home life. So, I'm a, a husband and a, and a dad now. Um, there's work life. I work over Kingston Bridge in Hampton Wick. Um, then there's church life. I'm a life group leader here with my wife, Katie. And finally, there's my friends and my family. Um, and these, I suppose, if you like, are the sort of some parts of my life. So I would encourage you today, as we sort of press on into this verse, to just anchor in your mind what is your context that you're currently operating in today, and maybe it similar, be similar to mine as well. So Daniel knew his context, and I suppose in one sense he didn't really get much of a choice about it. He was sort of thrust upon him. Um, but what we can learn, so what, but, but what we can do is we can learn a lot about how he operated in that context. And I think the first thing we can start to get a sense of, and the first thing I want to impress upon you guys today, is that he stepped out into his context. Daniel is a great reminder that Christianity is not a passive faith. It's one that does demand more from us. It's one that calls us to step off the sidelines and onto the field of play. And I think we can see that to begin with in Daniel's life. But what does it mean to firstly step out into our context? Well, firstly, I think it means being prepared. I've read this book, uh, Daniel, countless times before, I'm sure, uh, from being a boy to now. But it only dawned on me, just, just reading it afresh this time around, that in spite of never probably being able to predict his context in which he would soon find himself, that is, standing in front of the king, he must have in some way prepared for it. Daniel was chosen because of who he was, and he hadn't become that person by accident. Our text tells us that the king was looking for youths without blemish, of good appearance, of skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and the language. And whilst we don't know for sure, we could probably also add to that list that he was spiritually very prepared as well. As we go through this book, as we go through the book of Daniel over the course of the next few weeks, we'll learn he was a man that loved God and loved his scripture. So how do you effectively engage with society, with people around us? We've got to get prepared for it, haven't we? So practically speaking, what are, you, are you investing in what you know? Are you taking care of your appearance? Are you look, working on your social skills? Are you strengthening your spiritual resolve? These are universal skills that I think Kingston, our borough, the people around us are, are sort of looking for in people. There's a tension there, isn't there? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And we know that God doesn't necessarily look to our outward appearance. He doesn't care for sort of jumped up knowledge. But as Paul reminds us, we are to be all things to all people. So that, as he says, by any means we might save some. So if it matters to your potential future employer, or it matters to your mates, or it matters to your neighbours, I think it should matter to us. And so, if you want to position yourself for a new context, you must first prepare yourself. If you want to be effective, we can't be complacent. And as I was preparing for this, I was reminded that the mic who would turn up to university lectures with holes in his shoes wasn't necessarily the same mic that was appropriate for the professional workplace. And looking back, I was grateful that I got that revelation. And I think Tim Keller, uh, he touches on this brilliantly in his book, the sort of textbook of church building, if you like, called Centre Church, when he writes, if we fail to adapt to the culture, or if we fail to challenge the culture, that is, if we under or over contextualise, our ministry will be unfruitful because we have failed to contextualise well. And to contextualise well, we must be prepared for whatever comes our way. And I think hindsight can be a, a great thing here. And to, the reality is, is, preparation can can often happen in the obscurity, in ways that we didn't, never sort of expected it to. Um, when I was uh, growing up and at college, I, I became a waiter at Lock Fine, and at the time, uh, working you know uh, seven, eight, nine, ten hour shifts for people who um, uh, you know barely even tipped you, frankly. Uh, you, you sort of asked the question, what am I here for? But fast forward 12 years and I look back on those times with great fondness because so much of my life now, I realise, is about being confident on my feet in front of others. And It turns out that probably the most profound preparation field for much of that was being a waiter, looking after six, seven, eight people at any one time with a smile and a story and looking after their visit. So I look back on that time really, really fondly and I might not have necessarily known that that was preparing my, me for, for any level of impact, but it was. But I don't think we necessarily have to leave it to chance, to leave it to obscurity for preparing for our next context. If we want to be fruitful, we need to be intentional in preparing for our next context, whether we know what it is or not. The second thing I think Daniel teaches us about stepping into our context, being fruitful in our context, is the importance of listening and learning. For Daniel, it was clearly a formalised process, wasn't it? He says it was trained in readiness for his context to be in front of the king. And we know he was a learner, so for him it maybe came quite easily to him. But he wasn't an outlier. Impact in the kingdom of God tends to be preceded with learning. Take David. At a young age, it was prophesied over him that he would one day be king. He, God had shown him the context with which he was going to be stepping into. But it would, he would then be in the classroom for a 20 year period before he became king, learning what it was to be an effective leader and an effective king. Take Elisha. He was chosen to be the next great prophet of that era and would go on to perform some amazing miracles. But having been chosen, he would then spend many years learning from Elijah before going on to do what his master did and many more. Take Paul. In Acts 17, we learn that he's invited to go head to head with some of the great scholars and philosophers of Athens to win them over. But before doing so, we're also told he spends time and energy observing and discerning their ways. And of course, take Jesus, perhaps the most curious man to ever walk the planet. Uh, From an early age, we read he was busy listening and asking questions to the scholars Not because he necessarily didn't have the answers. I mean, he was God, right? But because he recognized a biblical principle that learning precedes impact. Never underestimate the importance of learning. It's an essential prerequisite for engaging effectively in our context. So what have you learned so far this year about your context? What's good about it? What's not so good about it? I think there's always opportunity to learn more. So once we've prepared ourselves for our context and learnt about our context, the final thing we learn from Daniel in this first part of our text today is that we are to step out into our context, to step off the sidelines and onto the field of play. What did that look like for Daniel? Well, amongst other things, we're told he takes on a brand new name, a local Babylonian name. It might not sound much uh, a name, right? Um, Katie and I are uh, expecting our second child in two or three weeks. And I can tell you for 30 weeks we've spent the time deliberating over what that child's name is going to be. So I can reassure you there is a lot in a name. In our name are the stories people remember us by, the characteristics uh, they know us by, the relationships with which we're connected by. There's a lot in a name. And I think Daniel's story affirms that we can proactively and should proactively take on culture. On the proviso, it doesn't take over us. After all, we can't extend an arm out to society if we're keeping society at arm's length. And again, to quote Paul, he said, to the Jews I become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so I might win those under the law to those who not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Having graduated from the hard knocks uh, of Loch Fine, the fish restaurant, uh, I spent three years at university, And uh, Aside from church life uh, and uh, and studies, uh, my other commitment was uh, my rugby. I loved rugby. I was a member of the rugby team. But I'm sure you can imagine, university rugby teams are are quite tribalistic and uh, not always the easiest place to become part of. But looking back uh, over the time that I spent there, I fondly remember how I did also take on a new name, a new nickname. Uh, New Traditions new hierarchy, new songs, new rituals. I took on much of what defined them as individuals and as a team, and on reflection, I could never have been an active, engaged member who had a license to speak into that context uh, if I hadn't have done that. Engaging effectively is like building a bridge between our faith and the world around us. If we fail to engage, it'll be like a bridge to nowhere, but if we over engage, it's a bridge from nowhere. And I think at times I I did over engage very much with the rugby team, I drank too much, engaged in the the jokes and the, the lewd songs. It was unwise and frankly looking back it totally diluted my message. But there were other times where I under engaged. To try and protect myself, I would sort of withdraw completely rather than, I don't know, taking a friend with me, being accountable to one another, looking after one another. <coughs> and I lost the opportunity to speak into those situations at all. In hindsight, I think I was aware of, of both errors in both options. It's a tension. But here's my provocation I think it is better to try and step out onto the bridge than to not step out at all. So, let me ask you again. What's your context? Are you preparing yourself for that context, for what lies ahead, whether you know what it is or not? Are you listening and learning about how it works and what makes it tick, uncovering the best and maybe the worst bits? And then are you stepping out? Are you building bridges into the lives of those around us? If you're finding those questions... um, hard to answer. Um, <laughs> welcome to the club, firstly. Secondly, I would say that the hard truth is the answers often in our diary. If you, where you invest your time, how you invest your time, is the best indication of how engaged you are with the context around you. And I'm not saying that to, to make us feel guilty necessarily, uh, not at all in fact, but I am making the point again that I think there is a cost that comes to this, um, and amongst other things, I think our cost as well as comfort is also our own time. To stepping out. That's our first, I think, call to action, if you like, from what we hear from Daniel. The well, first thing we can really learn. But our story continues. So if we get back to our text, we will have a look and see what happens next. so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine, and they were to drink. Uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Any vegetarians in the building today will be particularly uh, pleased with what Daniel uh, Daniel pushed for. So in engaging in the context in which Daniel stood, Daniel was also positioning himself to stand out for what he believed. But do you know, it's the sort of stand that Daniel takes? Daniel starts his stand in the relatively small matter of diet. Sounds slightly strange. Now, if you were gonna stand before the king, would you not go after his economic policies or his welfare policies or environmental policies? If you had one shot, would that not be the thing that you would really go after? By contrast, Daniel, he starts with diet. And we're not told exactly why it was that he stood against that, as opposed to potentially the sort of mystic teaching that he was given at the time, or indeed that name that he took. But in the context of what he goes on to do in his lifetime, I think there's something deeply profound that we can learn here. You see, if you can stand your ground over a little you're likely to stand your ground over a lot. It's in the small things where character gets formed. And for Daniel, it would have been this small act that would have given him the resolve to one day face the lions. Taking a stand comes in many shapes and sizes, but in my estimations, it can either mean standing against something, as Daniel did, or even standing for something. Having graduated university, and then went moved into the, the professional workplace with no holes in my shoes, thankfully. And um, before long, I found myself working in Slough. Um, uh, Slough is uh, within the south of England, one of the poorer parts of, of, of the UK. And there we were in this big, beautiful building. Um, we'd sort of drive in from afar, do our work, and then drive out. And um, it sort of dawned on me that There was something on our doorstep that we weren't doing anything about, and so uh, what we did is we sort of put together uh, a proposal to the business, um, which was around um, working with our corporate uh, charity at the time, which was Save the Children, to actually go out in teams into our community to weed lawns, to paint walls, to tidy houses, to do small things that would make a small difference, but as a collective, over time, it would really stand for something different within this corporate world, which the street we were on was just full of corporations, right? Um, and I think over time that sort of continued to happen. We sort of stood for something slightly different and uh, the headwinds came with us. Uh, and I hope still today, I don't still work there, but I hope today that they're still invested in the community around them. We were standing for something slightly different. We were trying to restore something of the welfare to the area around us. But it may not even, may not even be as, uh, something as grand as that, that you stand for. Could you stand for honoring women in a workplace that's quite blokey, if that's the context in which you find yourself? Could you stand against criticism or gossip, if that's something that you see around you in the workplace? Could you stand for honoring your leaders when others are criticizing them and throwing rocks at them? That's what our Bible teaches us to do. So what are you standing for today? What could you stand for today? Everyone can take a small stand for something, right? I really believe that. And I think it helps as we're a church body. We're able to do it together as families, share our war stories together, encourage one another. But let me also say this, don't let the lack of a major stand get in the way of standing for something. So are you ready to start small today? We can achieve so much by standing in small, simple ways. So that's my second provocation today. Step out, but also stand out. But let me pose this question to you. Is this where we should settle? Are we to simply stay standing for the small? It's good. It's really good. Standing in those ways is very, very powerful. But it's my conviction that it's not God's ultimate destination for us. I love the song we sang today. Impossible things, they can be done. And I loved that, uh, that, that contribution that Becca brought. It felt like it was an exclamation mark on the end of that verse. One of the reasons we put know God ahead of make God known in our vision statement as a church is because only through knowing the full nature of the God we serve will we come to know the full extent of what we're capable of as individuals and as a church through him. I'm always so inspired by the stories of great missionaries and perhaps none more so than the story of the great Indian missionary William Carey. And undoubtedly, he was a man that famously started small. In 1793, him and his family and a small band of missionaries set sail for India. He spent the first year focused simply on learning the language and listening to the culture around him like we talked about a moment ago. He lived in a small town near Calcutta and helped run a small factory. In his first eight years, (laughs) unbelievable, in his first eight years in India, in a completely different context to what he was used to, he didn't see a single convert. It was the ultimate story, I think, of a stranger in a strange land who had stepped out and stood out for something different, but with remarkably small beginnings. But in 1800, eight years after finding himself on the shores of India, his fortune changed and he saw his first convert. Don't despise the day of small beginnings, but they are just beginnings. And Carey didn't stop there. By 1834, half a million Indian people had come to know Christ because of his ministry at great personal cost, and I mean great with a capital G, he ultimately ended up changing the course of an entire nation. And If that wasn't enough, he set the hearts alight of thousands of people in England for mission, including perhaps what many would see as the greatest missionary of recent ages, Hudson Taylor. But before he did any of this, before the big impact, before even the small beginnings, He famously preached, and I think our verse that we sang today also touches on this. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I'm not suggesting becoming missionaries is God's end game for all of us, by no means. But Carey, I think, captured something brilliantly of God's heart for us. He's calling us, firstly, to step out. He's calling us, secondly, to stand out and to ultimately, and I think this is our third point, to go all out expecting great things from God, attempting great things for God. Wherever you are on this journey, are you ready today to take a step forward? But this begs the final question. Wherever we are on this journey of greater and greater steps into our context, the question I think I I always find myself posing myself, but in this context, let me put it like this. Where do we find that sort of Daniel-like resolve to go further? And I think the answer then comes in our final text today. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar, And the king spoke with them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What we see in here is the full extent of God's provision for Daniel and his friends. Take that first verse. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. They were there in that context to teach literature, to teach wisdom. And in that context, God gave them all they needed. If we go down the the verse even further, it says, Therefore they stood before the king. When they were stood before the king, It says, the king spoke with them and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. When they stood before him, none was found better. When we need it most in the matters of stepping out, when Daniel needed it most there in front of the king, God was with him. And finally, this final verse at the end there, it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus became king approximately 70 years after Daniel was exiled. What this is teaching us is that God was with Daniel for as long as he needed them. If I can invite the band up to help us respond. So what do we learn here? We don't serve a stingy God, a God that calls us to go and then waves us goodbye. What we find in this passage is the full provision of God. You see, we serve a God who in the matters of stepping out, standing out, and indeed going all out, provides us all we need, when we need it, for as long as we need it. Why can we be sure that we'll receive the same provision today? Because this is the God who himself walked amongst us and went first in Jesus. He too was exiled at a young age. He too listened and learned to the heartbeat of his society. He too stepped out into society, connecting with stories and questions and over meals and through miracles. He too took a stand against the very worst parts of society and took a stand for an altogether kind of different life but he went the whole distance. He went all the way. He went all out. He took the ultimate stand, bearing the full weight of his mission at the cross, laying down his life to complete what he was standing for. And it changed everything. Daniel was good. William Gary was good. But Jesus is better. And this is the Jesus we serve. This is the God we serve. And in the very last thing he would say to his disciples, he told them to go. But then he said, he will be with us always. So, a final question. Will you engage your context afresh this year? Will you step out? Will you stand out? And will you ready yourself for going all out? God is calling you to take a stand but he's also standing there right with you. I'm going to sing a a song of worship just to help us reflect. Um, And then maybe we'll lead us in a response. Okay, Do you want to jump to your feet and we're going to respond.